Happy Thanksgiving. How many of you are traveling? Anybody traveling? Everybody's staying. You are traveling? You're going from one side of Charlestown to the other side. That is a brave move. Um, Absolutely. Last week was an incredibly encouraging time. Uh, Last week for me was one of those days right up there with baptisms where it will burn in my brain for a long time, just watching us come together and pray for one another uh, and pray for Lana. And she has surgery tomorrow, so keep uh, her and Carson and Alicia and Barrett and your person. And just be church family. Like I've been in plenty of churches where everything is kind of flows this way but doesn't flow like this way where people don't know one another. And last week, like just in talking about worship, uh, Lana said, man, it was so cool. Dasheen hugged me after church last week. And I thought, man, what a neat picture of uh, us becoming family uh, together. It was very sweet and I love it. So today we're wrapping up this series called My Crazy Family. I put the scripture up here uh, that we're going to be looking at, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 1, 4 through 9. And I gave you the page numbers there, 1053 through 954. It's been intended to look at our families. I don't know how many of you have insane family members. I had an uncle, I talked about him almost every week, who used to, every year, he at the table, like he would sort of just lean back from the table and cough a loogie into a, uh, a cloth, my grandmother's cloth napkins, and that was when you kind of knew he was done with the food. Like, and you just look and you're like, how am I blood-related to these people? And they probably look at me and think the same Same thing. But it's also, so it's been a series to like prepare us to deal with our families, but also a series to prepare us, uh, to continue to prepare us to deal with one another as a church family, with people who are at all stages on the journey. Like some of you have been walking with Jesus now for a long time, and some of you, like you're still not even totally sure you're in on this. You're trying to figure it out, and and we're at all places in the middle, and and we've got to learn to relate to one another really well as we journey to be who God's called us to be. So in this series, we talked about uh, three things at this point. One, learning to listen. Uh, like learning to listen when we go and sit with family. Do you have, any of you have talkers? I have a cousin. I'm not going to name her name. Uh, but man, she is a talker. She will keep you there at my mom's Christmas Eve party till 11 o'clock talking and just on and on stream of consciousness if you let, let her. So learning to listen. The second one was giving the benefit of the doubt, like assume, trying to assume the best about other people and giving the benefit of the doubt. Last week was about appreciating the family around the table, loving them where they are, but loving them too much to stay that way. And then today we wrap up by talking about expressing gratitude. And so I love that movie, uh, Christmas Vacation. Is anybody a fan of Christmas Vacation? Good. All right. Most of us. Good. Uh, for years, there's this one scene that I didn't like. The older I get, the more I like it. It's that scene where Clark uh, gets stuck. He's hiding the present up in the attic, you know, the one. And he gets stuck. The attic gets closed because it's chilly. And the family runs into town to run errands. And he nearly freezes to death. I didn't like that shawl and that little hat thing he wore uh, as a kid. That irritated me for whatever reason. I didn't like, I, I hate stuff like this in movies. I didn't like that part where he steps on the board and it hits him in the face. And then he backs up and steps on another one. And it hits him in the, I hate that stuff. So that annoyed me a lot. I love the Ray Charles song, The Spirit of Christmas, that's in that scene. It's one of my favorite Christmas songs, and it kills me, but you can't get it in iTunes or anywhere like that. But I love that song. But the thing that annoyed me the most about that scene was that part where he's putting the gift, I think, like behind the the chimney or something, and he finds another gift for Audrey from a previous holiday. Do you know what I'm talking about? And he pulls out and dusts it off. I hate that scene. I hate that moment. I hate it. Like, it, it creates a ton of questions for me. Like, 
what was in the present, what is inside that paper. That bothers me. It bothers me like was her Christmas incomplete because she didn't get this one gift. It bothers me asking like did she feel cheated out of her Christmas because it looks like it's jewelry and that little and that little box like what all is going on it just seems so wasteful. How could Clark be so wasteful and forgetful and it bugs me to death. It seems like and this has happened in our family plenty of times. Natalie's mom is a gift giver. Natalie and all of her siblings are gift givers. That's how they show love. If you get a gift from Nat, that's how she shows love. Some people it's words, some people it's service, some people it's time. It's gifts for her. And her mom doesn't put labels on Christmas presents. Do you know anybody who doesn't do that, right? And so there's been, like, the house is, uh, Natalie's mom's house at Christmas is a tree. And then, like, the tree just vomited out gifts. And there's just (laughs) gifts everywhere and some don't have labels and she's looking around she goes I think this is so and so I think this is so and so's and you get to the end of the Christmas presents and you're not even sure if they're all done who's got what you'll open the wrong gift for somebody sometimes right and uh and this is our deal and a lot of times late at night everybody's left it's just Nat and her mom and I and you'll see the light bulb go off over her head and she'll remember oh I got one more gift I got one more gift and, uh, and part of me is like, awesome. You know, it's the sequel. Presents, the sequel. Another part of me is just annoyed. Why won't you put the labels on there? Why are you hiding gifts all over the house like it's an egg hunt? Why is this such a problem? Uh, it's no fun to think that there's a random present out there that you didn't get. That's a miserable thing to me. Gratitude is a gift, too. Like, gratitude really genuinely is a gift. And this week, our country has set aside a day to be grateful. And, and they rearrange everything. Like, we get special meals. We were just talking about turkey, how Scott and I love turkey. It's a shame that there's not three or four holidays during the year where we get to eat turkey. And we have all these other sides that we don't eat during the year. The mail doesn't come. Most employees get at least a half a day off. Almost everybody gets the full day off. There's a football schedule that doesn't exist any other time of year except on this one day. And we've said, and then like after you're sick of your family, everybody goes to the movies and sees movies that just sort of come out on that day, right? It's such a special day just to be grateful to God for his gifts, for people, for our country, for life, and everything in between. But man, I'm not always the best at expressing gratitude. Sometimes I can tend to take things for granted, take people for granted, take stuff for granted, and not do the best at thanking uh, and expressing gratitude. I feel grateful, I just don't articulate that gratitude, right? So today we're going to look at Paul's letter to Corinth. This is uh, my favorite church in the New Testament because they're really screwed up, really, really screwed up. If you got your Bible, grab it, and I'm going to show you how screwed up they totally are. If you don't remember this church or if you've never heard anybody talk about this church, it's a letter that Paul is writing. He writes churches to all these cities across the coast in the, in the Roman Empire that he's uh, played a part in starting, right? And so in this one, uh, I want us to look just really briefly at the headings of the chapters. Like you should have headings, a lot of you, in your Bibles. Now the headings aren't inspired. Like when Paul wrote these le- this letter, he wasn't writing it with headings. The, the chapters in the Bible were added in 1227, up to 1227. This was just a letter. 
People would have read it for 1,227 years as just a letter. In 1227, they added chapters to make it easier for people to find things in the Bible. In 1551, they added verses to make it even easier. And then just in the last 100 years, they've added a lot of these headings so we can sort of find stuff. Now look at the heading in 110 in your Bible. It says divisions in the church. So almost the first thing he's got to deal with is these people fighting with one another. Go over to 3.1, divisions in the church. He sort of walked away from the fact that they were fighting, left it, and when he comes back, and he's going to start dealing with their fighting again, right? Look at uh, 5.1. Turn your page if you have to to 5.1. Sexual immorality defiles the church because you have a guy in the church who's actually sleeping with his stepmom, and all the people are coming to church like, good job, dude. Nice, man. She's really attractive. And, and Paul's like, what are you doing? Like, first of all, why is he sleeping with his stepmom? How are you guys not losing your minds about this? Look at 6-1, lawsuits against believers. They're taking one another to court and suing each other. Like, look around the room really quickly. Like, who would you most take to court in this room and sue? Like, they're sitting there in church thinking, boy, nobody better mess with me. I'm taking him to court, right? And 6-12, flee sexual immorality. They're all just sleeping together and acting like fools and thinking it's great. He's telling them to run. And then go over to 1117, the Lord's Supper. And this is my favorite thing about this church. They were so messed up. They would come, the rich people would come early. They had a, a, a pre-party and they would get drunk at the Lord's t- uh, Supper table and not invite all the poor people. So now the poor people would uh, arrive and there's no food for communion and no wine, and all the rich people are drunk. And Paul is telling them, like, this is how you're going to receive communion. This is a carnal, worldly church, and Paul is writing them to address all these issues. So how would he start that letter? How would you start that letter if you've got to confront people around all these issues? I want us to see exactly how he starts the letter. Now, in in a letter in the Roman Empire, you would always start with your signature. In our world, we end with the signature. There they start with the signature. So the first thing you get, 1-1, Paul. He's introducing himself. The next thing you get is who the recipient is. So that's verses 2 and 3. And then here we go in verse 4. What is he going to, how is he going to address them? Is it going to be with anger or frustration or disbelief or rebuke? Here's what he says. I give thanks to my God always for you. Man, I would have laid into these people. Like, Noah will hit Owen sometimes, and there's nothing in me that wants to be gracious or understanding. I just want to jump in, and what are you doing to your brother? He doesn't. I thank, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. Now, they're not acting like Christians at all. They're not acting like a church at all. But his lead-in to this whole letter before he starts getting to their issues is, I thank God for his grace in your life that is enriching you in every way to live the faith. Keep going in verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking And any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
And we'll go through if we can, verse by verse, and kind of talk this through just a little bit. His very first words after this introduction was a prayer thanking God for these people. He's thanking God for them. Despite their flaws and shortcomings and sin, he's thanking God for them. He didn't express frustration, anger, disbelief, or rebuke. And he didn't stay silent about his gratitude. Sometimes we can just withhold gratitude, withhold praise. It's just easier. Like it, get, it makes us feel like we have the upper hand if we hang on to it. But he didn't do that at all. He didn't even say, I'm mad at you. There's another letter, Galatians, where he starts in immediately. I am so... He says, I am in disbelief that you are abandoning the faith this quickly. But with these guys, the worst church in the New Testament, the worst church that he started in this moment, he starts in with, man, I thank God for you every time I think about you. In verse 4, he gives thanks for God's grace in their lives. Grace is God giving us in Christ by his death and resurrection, forgiveness and relationship. This is the most counterintuitive thing in our neighborhood. I talk with people all the time. And, uh, and they chalk everything up to karma. So much is about karma. And, and I do believe in like the idea of sowing and reaping, that we sow things in our lives and we reap them. Uh, but I don't want to believe in karma. And I love the interview that Bono, the lead singer of U2, did with uh, a French journalist in, in the book that goes by Bono's name. And the journalist says, don't you believe in karma? And Bono says, no, 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 no. Don't give me karma. He says, I want grace. And, the, and the, the atheist sort of reporter says, well, what is that? And Bono says, it's, grace is God giving me something that I didn't deserve at all. And then he goes on to talk about his struggles and his sins and his shortcomings. And he says, I don't want karma because if I get karma, I'm in trouble. I want grace. And the, the guy in response says, well, that's a, it's, it's such a powerful moment. He says, well, that's a lovely idea. That's a lovely idea. And there's probably some condescension in that. But man, there is something lovely about God giving us grace that we, didn't, that we don't deserve. See, theologically, the truth is, if we sin one time, if we sin one time before a holy, perfect God, we would deserve hell and separation from God and wrath and all of that stuff. And God knew it. And even beyond that, like if... If we were totally sinless, and I'm looking around the room thinking, like, who is the most sinless person in this room, right? And all of you are sinners, uh, and it takes one to know one, right? If, if we were totally sinless, though, by DNA, because our parents and their parents sin and their parents sin and their parents sin, we go all the way back to Adam and Eve, and they sin by DNA, by nature, by identity, we would be sinners. And we cannot fix this problem by ourselves, God had a plan. And the gospel is that God had a plan. And the plan is grace. And we can have relationship with God by grace, God giving us something we can never earn. Uh, we can have relationship with God because of Jesus and his death. And so one of my favorite acronyms uh, that I've ever read is this. Grace is the idea, uh, very simply, of us getting God's riches at Christ's expense. God, by grace, gives us something we could never earn and never deserve. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Paul was thankful for grace in his life and grace in their life. I mean, he starts the letter. He, he does, before he even starts, hey, to the guy who's sleeping with his uh, stepmom, to the people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper table, to the ones taking each other to court and fighting about, literally fist fighting about who your favorite preacher was in the history of the church, he starts the letter with grace. 
grace to you. I thank God for his grace to you that covers all of that, all of those struggles. In verse 5, he goes on. Because of Jesus and grace, Paul says they're enriched in speech and knowledge. These people hadn't spoken well to one another at all, and they're living like spiritual idiots. Like, do you ever, maybe you don't, maybe you're not as judgmental as I can tend to be. Do you ever look at pe- like people and think, man, you are living like an idiot right now. Like, and that has to be how Paul is thinking about these people. Even though they're living like spiritual morons, Paul thanked God for them because they were enriched to live like Christ, to live the life of faith. Verse 7, he goes on to say that in Christ they have everything they need to follow Jesus. God doesn't, the, the, the journey of faith following God is not a thing like a, like a check-in spot where you get this much grace now and then you journey with God, you learn some Bible verses or you go to church a certain amount of time and then you get to a check-in spot and God gives you a little more and then you journey down a little further and, and you learn to share your faith or you go on a mission trip or something like that and then you check in and God gives you more. Everything that you're ever going to need to follow Jesus, God has made available to you the day that you committed your life to follow Jesus. He's enriched us in every way and given us everything that we need. And in verse 8, he says, and it will sustain you. It keeps getting bigger. He's not flattering them or praising them to trick them, but he's reminding them of deeper, more beautiful truths. He reminds them that grace is going to keep them to the end. This is, I I talked to some friends the other day, and they were like, we're talking about Kanye West and Kanye's recent conversion. And they were like, oh, it's not real. It's not real. I said, well, let's just wait and see. Who knows if it's real? People crazier than Kanye have come to Jesus. I know that's hard to believe, like, but they literally have. Like, people crazier than Kanye West have come to Jesus. And so Paul says, I thank God that his faith is going to hold you to the end. The, the, the term in Christian history for this is the perseverance of the saints. That the people who are truly born again, who have given their life to Jesus and come to follow Jesus, they start the race and they finish the race. And so we don't have to make conclusions about our faith journey in the middle of the race. Paul says we can make it to the end. God didn't save us to then not give us the stuff to get to the finish line, right? So that's the, he says God's grace will keep them to the end. And then he says God's grace has declared them guiltless. It's my favorite word probably in the New Testament is this idea of justification, God calling us guiltless. It's a legal term. Michaela's back there. Alicia's right here. Uh, Michaela can be God for the moment. I am me, sinner me. Alicia is Jesus. Paul is saying that when God declares us guiltless by Jesus, what he means is uh, God is the judge and, and we're in the courtroom and I'm on trial for how I have lived or not lived my life of faith, right? And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, when God looks at me, he only sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's all he sees. God has declared me in Jesus to be guiltless. God has declared you in Jesus to be guiltless. So, so many times in our life, Satan will come at us and say, oh, you're guilty. You're never going to get this. God is mad at you. He's disappointed. You don't believe enough. You don't have this together. And the truth is, if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus, when God looks at you, he only sees the righteousness of Jesus. Satan will say, oh, you don't pray enough. But Jesus stands in my defense and says, but I do. 
You don't obey enough. You sin too much. You get too angry. But Jesus stands in my defense and in your defense and, and says, but I did. I obeyed. And so Paul says that God's grace will keep us to the end and declare us guiltless. God is faithful and you and I are exhibit A. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're exhibit A of God's faithfulness. In verse 9, he wraps up by looking at the Corinthian Christians. And despite what uh, he's about to have to say, um, he's praising them because they're a display of God's faithfulness. He looks at the guy who is a believer but sleeping with his stepmother and says, I know you don't see it right now, but you're a display of God's faithfulness. I know you don't see it now, you who are in court going to trial tomorrow to sue one another, but you're a display of God's faithfulness. Do you see God's glory and goodness on display when you look at others, when you look at yourself? Oftentimes, I don't. I see people's failures and shortcomings more than I care to admit. I tend to see that more than I want to admit, especially the people closest to me, um, including myself. Do you see God's grace at work in your own life? Or do you see places where you aren't fully believing or obeying? God wants us to see his grace at work, not enabling us to live in sin and unbelief, but freeing us, freeing us to, to follow him. So there's three reasons I think Paul can, Paul can see this and speak this over them. I think we have slides for him. The first reason that Paul can do this, that he can see this despite their sin, he can start with praising God as one. He's aware of God's work in them and through them. Rather than look at their failure, Paul is aware that God is at work in them and through them in the world, right? And that provokes gratitude. And I will tell you today, but if you're a Christian, God is at work in you. Philippians 1.6 says, Paul writes to the church at Philippi and he says, Now we can be confident of this, that he who started something good in you is going to carry it all the way to the finish line in Christ Jesus. God's at work. Re Revelation 21, a letter that John is, uh, is writing to the churches being persecuted in Rome. And in chapter 21 of that book, he's, uh, he's quoting Jesus. Or, and Jesus is saying, behold, I'm making everything new. I'm making everything new. Sometimes I think we think God redeems some things and fixes some things. But there are other things he can't fix. And man, God's making all things new. He's making everything new. And so God's at work in us. God's also at work through us. He's at work through us with one another. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you're a Christian, the goal is not just to hang on tight till we get to heaven. If you're a Christian, the goal is to see broken things in the world and begin to fix them. To set those things right in the name of Jesus. When we see brokenness, we reconcile things. And he goes on in that same chapter. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. This week in the news, we've seen ambassadors and other people who represent our country and other countries talk about was a law broken and all of this stuff. And the thing I take away from that is there's a person sent by our government in another country. They're representing our government to that country and that country to our government. That's an ambassador, right? The Bible says that we are to be ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ in this world. And we even go before God in prayer and represent this world before Christ. We are ambassadors. God is working through us uh, in the world, representing him here. And then Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. In other words, God is working through us with one another. With one another. That, like, God didn't just save you or 
do something in your life so that you can be right with him. He also worked in our life so we can help one another know God more and become closer to God. So Paul's aware of God's work in them and through them. And God's at work around us and in our lives uh, with one another all the time. The second reason I think Paul can be grateful is he's aware of it. Spoken gratitude liberates people to become all God intends them to be. When we speak gratitude rather than criticism or silence, it begins to free people to become all God intends for them to be. Um, And some people, Paul could have been like a real jerk here and said, well, this is tough love. You, any of you have people in your life who do tough love? That's the way they do love. Uh, I had some tough love people in my family, right? And Paul doesn't do tough love because God doesn't. God does what we called early in the series agape love. It's cross love. It's self-sacrificing love. It's tender love. Agape holds nothing back. In 1968, there was a movie that came out. It's a little short movie uh, called Johnny Ringo. Has anybody ever seen Johnny Ringo? Uh, Johnny Ringo uh, is the story of a guy who is going through the Polynesian islands looking for a wife. And he lands on this one island looking for a wife, and he he finds this woman, and her name's Moki, and she's not very pretty. She's kind of sad, fairly unattractive, horrible body posture, not really loved or thought anything of on this island by the other people, right? And so... Um, he wants to marry her, and he goes to the dad, and, and he's gonna, they're going to try to agree on a dowry or a bride price. And the typical bride price on this island is three cows. And the dad is hoping, so he says, Johnny, I, I'm, you, can, you can make my daughter your wife for three cows. And, um, and he's really just saying three because he hopes to get one because she's not really that attractive and nobody thinks anything of her. She's kind of invisible on this island. And so he said, so Johnny uh, says, I want to buy her for eight. I want to pay eight to marry your daughter. And so he agrees. He, uh, he accepts the bride price of eight cows. Johnny Ringo marries Moki. They leave the island. Well, years later, they come back. And when she comes on the island, she is the most beautiful woman they have ever seen. And everybody's just stunned by Moki's beauty. And they say, why didn't we see this before? What was the deal? What was going on with her? And, uh, and even the dad gets really mad. And he says, you, you purchased my wife. The dowry price was eight cows. I should have asked ten. I never knew that my daughter was this beautiful. And he's furious. And the truth of the story um, now, I know in our culture, by the way, let me just say, in our culture, the idea of men paying cows to marry a uh, bride, like I know that's kind of offensive and annoying, uh, and I know that like the idea even of a dad marrying off uh, his daughter may be tough for some of us to hear, though the older my boys get, the idea, the more the idea of an arranged marriage seems just fine with me. Like uh, I know that those things can be tough, but don't miss the point. The point of the story is that love and gratitude frees people to become all they can become. I mean, she was just as beautiful all along. It was just no, like someone seeing something in her that nobody else saw that freed her to become this beautiful woman. Can I tell you something about 1 Corinthians? By the time you get to 2 Corinthians, it's a different church. There's three letters that Paul wrote to this church, maybe four. Uh, 1 Corinthians is what we get as 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 
we don't get in the Bible. Who knows if the letter was destroyed or what happened, but we don't get 2 Corinthians. And so we don't get the actual second letter. We do get the book of 2 Corinthians, which is the third letter. Because in the 2 Corinthians, he says, now in my last letter, I told you da, 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 da. By the time we get to 2 Corinthians, this church has grown up. People aren't sleeping with their stepmoms anymore. They're not suing one another. They're not getting drunk at the Lord's Supper table. They've become more God-honoring. They put these sinful issues behind them. And they've become exactly what Paul calls them here in 1 Corinthians 1. See, it's not the rebuke that happens in chapters uh, 110 through the end of the book that begins to change them. It's Paul saying, God's grace changes you. God's grace is changing you. You have everything you need to be exactly who God has called you to be. They become what Paul calls them here in these verses. Now I want to tell you, we don't place our confidence in the church. We place our confidence in the, in the church's God and his ability to change us. Look around. The people in this room will fail you. If you journey with us long enough, we will all screw up. Once a week, somebody comes to me in love and says, man, you disappointed me when you did this. Doesn't happen a lot. Actually, not once a week. Maybe once a month. Usually it's something really small. Something came out and somebody, I, people didn't understand what I intended to say or I didn't say it right or whatever. That's why most of the time I preach from really thorough notes so I don't say something dumb. Uh, keeps me on schedule, right? I will disappoint you. You will disappoint one another. It would be much easier just to quit coming, say I'm done with them. I don't want to do that. But man, we don't put our confidence in the churches. We don't put our confidence in a church. We put our confidence in the God of the church. And we continue to journey together, knowing that we're better together than we are individually. And together we'll become everything that God wants us to be if we journey together long enough. So here's the big idea today. Like Clark Griswold and the present that never got opened, here's the, the main idea if you get anything. It's not original to me. It's by a guy named uh, William Arthur Ward who, who made this quote. He said, feeling gratitude and not expressing it is like wrapping a present and not giving it. Feeling gratitude and not expressing it is like wrapping a present and not giving it. Conversely, feeling gratitude and expressing it is like wrapping the greatest gift and then giving it freely and joyfully. See, this week, we're going to feel gratitude. We're told we need to feel thankful at Thanksgiving, right? But it's like wrapping a gift if we don't then express the gratitude that we feel. And so God would have us, what Paul does here, he doesn't just feel gratitude for this church and then withhold it. He feels gratitude and expresses it. And so to your crazy family uh, and our crazy faith family, I want to encourage us to express gratitude in three ways. I think we have slides for this. Number one, I want to encourage you to express your gratitude privately. This week, sometime, I want you to get uh, in the silence of your home or wherever with a piece of paper and a pen and I want you to begin to write down privately the good things that God has given you that you are thankful for. Just begin to write those things down and thank God as you write. You know, you can write, hey, I'm thankful for my spouse. I'm thankful for my parents. I'm thankful for my home. I'm thankful for my church. I'm thankful for my salvation. And if you don't want to pray that, just hold it up to God. He can read and say, God, here it is. Here's my list. Here's what I'm grateful for. He's okay with that. But privately, get before God. And thank him, especially for other people in your life. Before Paul thanked God for them publicly, 
he had thanked God for them privately. That's what he says. I give thanks to my God always for you. Privately, he was thanking God for them. We would be wise to prayerfully thank God for his activities in others' lives, especially with the crazy people in your family and in our church. We would be wise to thank God for them because when we express that gratitude to him, it begins to change our hearts from aggravation to appreciation. Second, I want to encourage you to express gratitude personally. Now, pull out your cell phone. Go ahead. You can do it. safe. Don't go to Facebook or Instagram or whatever you, whatever your ESPN or whatever your news thing is. Don't go to that. Um, I want you to go to your text messages and somebody in your life, be whoever. I want you to text somebody that you thank God for really quickly with this message. I am in church thinking of God's gift to me, and I am so grateful for you. If you want, just text somebody. I am in church thinking of God's gift to me, and I am so grateful for you. You can word that however you want. I love it that somebody you know is about to get a message uh, that you were texting in the middle of church. I am in church thinking of God's gifts to me, and I am so grateful for you. We need to express gratitude personally, telling people how we see the grace of God at work in their lives and sharing gratitude to encourage them and glorify God. While you're texting, I'm going to share the last one with you. We need to express gratitude publicly. The letter was read in this church and probably to other churches in the area. That's the crazy part. See, these letters weren't just read to one church. They were read to a church and then they would pass them around. Donnie, what, what neighborhood do you live in? You live in Dorchester. And then, D, you live in Roxbury. And then Dorchester also. So Dorchester, Roxbury. A couple people live in Andover. A couple people in Somerville. The equivalent of this is if, uh, if God sent us a letter to this church and it's really embarrassing, we kind of want to keep it in house. You know, if God's like, I can't believe you guys are da-da-da-da-da. Right? But that's not how it worked, unfortunately. Like, Paul would write a letter to Charlestown, and then it would make its way to Dorchester, Roxbury, Andover, Somerville, and the other neighborhoods. That's how this worked. But Paul, so Paul, knowing that, thanks God for them. He's thanking God for them publicly. We need to express gratitude publicly. Uh, In your life, look for opportunities to share with others how you see God at work in the life of a family member this week or in your brother or sister in Christ. And then take a moment to share that publicly. Listen, like my wife, one thing my wife loves, uh, I'm going to let you in on an intimacy secret, right? She loves it if I touch her in public. Just like touch her back or kiss her on the temple or whatever. She says... You could do that stuff at home all day long. But when I show that affection in public, it's like it, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if your emotional tank is a gas tank, man, that is like a half a tank of gas right there. Boom. And she loves when I show affection. I don't talk about my wife and my kids enough, specifically in church, about the things I'm grateful for. But man, my wife has been on a 15-year journey now of craziness, like starting churches and being in ministry she has been really tough to manage our home, to work, to do all this stuff. And she is incredible. My kids can drive me bonkers. 
But every time that we go out in public with other people, they're like, man, your kids are great. My kids are awesome. And the things they pray for, every Sunday, I love this about Noah, we'll get home and Noah will go, Dad, how many people were at church today? And he always wants to know because he's not just a tag-along in this journey, man. He, as a, as a kid who's given his life to Jesus in the last year, is also praying that we'll see people in this neighborhood and his friends come to faith. I love that. I thank God for that, right? I thank God for you. Man, the idea for some of you that you would be sitting here a year ago just makes me laugh, like to think about what God is doing in your life. Last week, two guys who come most Sundays checked off on the box that they wanted to give their life to Jesus. Man, I thank God for that. There's churches in New England and all across this country where they don't see that happen in the course of a year. Man, what a neat story of what God's doing. It's been fun to watch you love one another. I thank God for that. I'm grateful to see you love each other. Look for opportunities to share with others how you see God at work in the life of a family member this week or another Christian this week and take the moment to share publicly your gratitude uh, in their life. Feeling gratitude and not expressing it is like wrapping a present and not giving it. Conversely, feeling gratitude and expressing it is like wrapping the greatest gift and giving it freely and joyfully. I want to share with you one last reason, and then we're going to receive communion. One last reason why Paul is grateful. I think we have a slide for this. Paul was aware of God's grace at work in his own life. Paul was aware of God's grace at work in his own life, that he was a work in progress. Uh, Paul was the first century, century equivalent of Osama bin Laden. He was a, a guy who killed Christians for a living. That was what he did. He was a terrorist who killed Christians who were choosing to follow Jesus. And God saved him and brought him into his family and called him to do all this incredible stuff. But the amazing thing about grace is grace levels the playing field for all of us. And Paul knew it. How could he criticize them? The best illustration I ever heard was by an author who said that what grace does versus getting to God, if God, if, if where God is is the moon, trying to get to God is like the idea of jumping to the moon. And Michael Jordan may jump higher than me, but when it comes to jumping to the moon, none of us is really that close, right? And so what grace does is it levels the playing field. Jesus says, you can't do this. You can't make your way to God. I will make my way to you. And so grace makes Kanye West equal to Mother Teresa. Grace makes Stephen Colbert equal to Billy Graham. Grace makes Bono equal to Martin Luther King. Even here at Christ Church Charlestown, grace makes two young men who last week said they wanted to commit their lives to follow Jesus equal to the one in here who's walked with Jesus the longest and closest. And that's not me, by the way. And so I'm thankful for grace. I haven't walked with Jesus as long as some of you have. And I certainly don't walk with him as closely as some of you do. But he is changing me. My go-to illustration about my own sinfulness is how I drive in traffic. You've heard it, and a lot of you are like, thank God you're as big a wreck as I am with all of that. Can I tell you, for the last two weeks, I haven't lost my mind in traffic. I've honked my horn one time, and it was because a guy in the middle of the street almost backed his car into me in the north end. It was just to let him know I was there. I prefer not to have an accident. One time in two weeks, one time in two weeks have I yelled or honked my horn at someone, and that is grace. That is God working in me as he works on me, right? Um, 
We are all in need equally, but we're also equally provided for in Jesus. By grace, as Paul said in, one, in 1 Corinthians 1, 4-9, God is faithful and we're enriched in speech and knowledge. We can live the Christian life. We're not lacking what's needed to walk by faith and obedience. We have strength and we're declared not guilty. It's all grace. And when I realize how much grace I received, I become free to extend grace and show gratitude to other people. So happy Thanksgiving. Don't just be grateful. I want to encourage you to express gratitude. God is at work in you and through you, freeing you to become all he intended for you to be. Uh, In closing, if you're not part of God's family, um, I I want to invite you to become part of God's family, to receive grace. You've got that connection card, communication card in your chair and, uh, or in your lap or beside you. And if, if at some point, like the two guys last week, if you say, I need to become a follower of Jesus, God doesn't need you to be religious. He doesn't need you to have it all together. He just wants you to be part of his family. And that happens just like when someone proposes to someone else. You go and, and there's an invitation extended and an invitation received. And God today is inviting you to become part of his family. He is extending an invite for you to be saved, to be his. Uh, And if you are a believer or not today, sort of the other big takeaway, express gratitude. Man, express gratitude. For every one criticism, I think if we could have two uh, statements of what God is doing, we will become more quickly who God intends for us to be. Sometimes we just need someone else to see it in us. Let me pray for us.